WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Well, thank you, Jason. And joining me today on Campus Voices, we have two members of the University of Delaware's Communication Department, Assistant Professors Lindsay Hoffman and Dan and Young, who both have an interest in political communication, and you're both also affiliated with the Center for Political Communication. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Okay. Well, let's start off just tossing this to you. I mean, it seems like forever candidates have been doing dirty tricks, negative ads, and that kind of thing. Is the trend getting worse? or? I think that we've always seen negativity in campaigns. Uh, I don't think that, that there's any question that, that it, this is a new thing. Um, and I think that uh, television in particular uh, sort of heightened that to some extent. We, we began to see that negativity translating into a more mass-produced forum. So I don't think it – I mean, I think that negativity is a key component of campaigns, um, and it, it is today. But I don't think it's necessarily worse. Yeah, you know, I think um, when you look back, there are certain campaigns that were particularly abysmal, not just – because of negativity, but because of like misleading and deceptive advertising. So I'm thinking of 1988 in particular with um, Bush Dukakis, the revolving door ad about Willie Horton, which was a misleading right. political ad about the role that Dukakis may have played in, in giving people uh, furloughs, prisoners furloughs. Um, I think what we're seeing right now may be more negativity due to the Citizens United decision, which allows the formations of these super PACs with uh, money from individuals and organizations and, and unions, um, unlimited donations that we didn't see before to go to explicit campaigning. So electioneering ads that are for or against candidates. So I think some of the data that has come out this year has shown that the most negative advertising and the most deceptive ads, at least in 2012, are coming out of these super PACs because the candidates themselves don't have to stand behind them. Right, right. And I mean, we know that negativity works. That's what people remember. Um, it's what, you know, it may turn some folks off, uh, those people who are probably already engaged, already informed. But that's not necessarily who these ads are for. That's not who the campaigns are targeting. They're targeting those folks that may switch to their side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea that negativity <clears throat> works is is a rule of thumb. And I think probably both of us at times have thought, that can't be true. Negative t negativity, it shouldn't work, so it doesn't work, but it does. And that's what all the research seems to suggest. Now, that, that court ruling you referred to, that basically was saying that it's a free speech right mm -hmm. that these PACs can go ahead and spend their money, but because it's outside of the campaign finance laws, that pretty much is a carte blanche kind of thing. Right. So we're seeing probably what will be close to three quarters of a billion dollars or even a billion dollars spent for each candidate. And that includes, um, <clears throat> excuse me, their own coffers as well as the, the party and then the major super PAC that's associated with uh, each of the campaigns. But I mean, we're beginning to see it, you know, if there's anything negative about um, this campaign, it's it's all that money that's being spent. It's it's the sort of complete, you know, overhaul of of traditional campaigns by just throwing tons and tons of money at it. One of the things um, that I've been involved with this campaign season is an organization called FlackCheck.org um, out of the Annenberg Public Policy Center. It's run by Kathleen Hall Jameson and. 
Um, the University of Pennsylvania is also involved with factcheck.org, which many people know because it's a fact-checking website where you can go to see if political claims are accurate or not. Factcheck.org tries to expose those inaccuracies, but through maybe more entertaining ways and humorous ways. And FlackCheck has also been involved in trying to get local affiliates to um, really think about the accuracy of the ads that they're airing, particularly from super PACs, um, before they air them. Because super PACs are not sort of entitled to that free time rule as candidates' ads are. So it really is in the hands of a local affiliate and that news director there as to whether or not they're going to choose to air inaccurate, deceptive super PAC ads. The problem is if you talk to the local news stations in terms of the the money side of things, they make so much money in the swing states in particular. They make so much money from the purchasing of uh, these, this time for political advertisements. Right. So it, you know, the, it it becomes, um, a bit of a catch-22. It's like, you know, they don't necessarily, I don't think they want to misinform the public, but, um, you know, local television stations are struggling That's and true. they do need the money. And this is, you know, every four years, they're they're definitely going to get it. Right. And a lot of times the, the idea of what is a deceptive ad, what is a lie, I mean, we enter Colbert's truthiness zone and a lot of times the the money side of of a local... Uh, station doesn't really want to be dealing with that or editorial process of am I going to make the call about whether or not this ad is inaccurate or accurate? That's not my job. Right now, I'm I'm old enough. I remember back in 1976. I remember when the governor of Missouri happened to look right into the camera and tell what I knew was a lie. That was the first time I I, I, I had facts. I knew this was a lie. But you're saying there's is there any control over what goes into political communication? I mean any. Well, I think political communication is about a battle for truth, um, and there can be many truths uh, around any situation. So I think what campaigning is, what political communication is, is the communicative process in that search for truth, in that search for, or at least persuading others. Right. I was going to say, it's not really, I love this, by the way, Hoffman, <laughs> I'm stealing this. Um, uh, I, I love the idea that it's not necessarily a search for truth. But it's a battle to identify one's own truth as the ultimate truth. Exactly. And I, I think um, what surprised me, you know, you mentioned factcheck.org and there's there's other fact-checking websites. And in 2008, um, you know, they did a terrific job. They did a good job in 2010. We've seen them do a good job in 2012. But they've done a couple things that have gotten partisan backlash, yeah. very um, harsh ideological criticism about Fact checkers. And so, I mean, what I think is funny is that we saw, you know, I was kind of relieved when we started to see fact checkers come about, you know, since um, the Internet was kind of this bastion for spreading rumors um, in the 2000s and still is, I guess. Um, But I was always sort of like, wait a minute, aren't the fact checkers supposed to be the journalists? (laughs) You know, so it's become like we had journalists. Then we have fact checkers checking the journalists and the campaigns. And now we have these sort of partisan fact checkers who say, don't believe the other fact checkers. We're the fact checkers you should believe. (laughs) At some point, we need to put faith in some of these nonpartisan nonprofit organizations that are exposing Untruths on both sides. Right. My favorite one of those untruths is the the birther concept. Is that dead yet? Mm, no. No. Um, no. In no. the mainstream press, it's dead. Information is um, in the eye of the beholder. I think you know it's it's not so much about 
facts and what is actually true. It's what you want to be true. And I think that's something that Dana and I um, both research, and I know we talk about about it with our students, is this concept of um, or these concepts of selective exposure, selective perception, that basically we are wired to want to see and read and hear information that is consistent with our views. If we were to walk around all day hearing people spouting off views that were completely counter to ours, we would probably go a little crazy. So it's we we have that innate desire to want to hear things that agree with our views. It's very difficult to sort of counteract that and try to be, you know, sort of at a meta level, be thinking, wait a minute, why do I believe this to be true? Is it because I want it to be true? Or, you know, the same thing for it being Imagine false. if we were that that thoughtful all the time. Like, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm thinking about something. Is Am I just believing this because I want this to be true? Or is it really true? We would be really awesome if I, we did I that I tell my time. students to do it. I give them, you know, I actually that, that book that Kathleen Hall Jameson co-authored, uh, Unspun. Unspun yeah. It's a great little book that's kind of, you know, how to how to make sense of all this stuff. And it's also funny. And I think that, you know, one thing that, that Dana and I both study is, is um, humor in the context of these of political campaigns and politics in general. And politics is funny. I mean, it's it's this is something that it, it um, people get so worked up about and understandably so, because the stakes are high, obviously. Now I sound like a political ad. The stakes are high. <laughs> um, but you know, it can be quite entertaining as well. And I think that's what we yeah. try to do, especially with our students who are right. just coming into this for the first time. You know, they're voting for the first time this year. I'm old enough that the first time I voted, one of my choices was George McGovern. So, you know, it's, it's I mean, my memory is that political campaigning, for the most part, goes about trying to, as you're saying, sort of reinforce what people believe to try and get your supporters out to the polls as opposed to the bad guys' supporters. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because there's two different processes that always go on in an election campaign. There's the rallying of the base, which means that you're going to really try to, I mean, not to explain it cynically, but it's true. You're going to try to market yourself as a candidate to those people who are probably farther to the left or farther to the right than than an independent voter. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to the general election campaign, you also need to mobilize those people who are in the middle. And um, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is that before there was this fragmentation and internet and cable television and digital technologies, what we saw in general was that candidates in the general election would engage in this purposeful, ambiguous rhetoric that was aimed at talking about the ends rather than the means. So we want a healthier country, a safe country. A lot of platitudes. A, yeah, exactly. A prosperous country without describing the means through which you would achieve those ends. What's interesting is that now you can't really engage in those kinds of platitudes because – and I think it's in part because of this media fragmentation where you have to speak to these individual audiences that are going to want to hear the means through which you're going to obtain those ends. And um, I think that poses a real rhetorical conundrum for candidates who are not only debating to mainstream America – so this is not just about um, engaging like the mainstream voter during the debates, but it's also about going to those partisan outlets and making sure that those people who you can count on to go to the polls are going to be mobilized to do so by reinforcing those means through which you will obtain those ends. Right. And then there's also the, um, you know, there are efforts to sort of demobilize uh, the opposition, you know, and sort of to and that's where we see the negative ads. We see um, 
you know, a lot of people would argue some of these voter ID laws are are intended to disenfranchise some voters. Um, I mean, that's that's a campaign tactic as well. It's not all about just uh, engaging your your base. So it's a very complex um, phenomenon and a really fascinating process. And, you know, I think one of the things that I find so interesting about uh, campaigns is, you know, I think in the past, a lot of scholars have said things like, you know, do campaigns really matter? I mean, we, we know that if if you're a Republican and you're a woman and whatever else, if we and the economy is good or bad, we can say with like 80 percent certainty, 85 percent certainty who you're going to vote for. But what makes campaigns so interesting is that elections are never decided within a 15 percent margin or 20 percent <laughs> right, margin. Right. It's a, it's about those people um, who who are swayed by communication. And it's a, it's so amazing to watch this process of how how especially the, the media dialogue, what the candidates are talking about. Now we've got, you know, the, the Twitter sphere and, you know, Facebook and the other social media. And just to see how quickly these things sort of change and evolve and move throughout the course of the campaign. The way, the way that the polls have been moving in this election campaign is really fascinating. And for b- political junkies, it's riveting. Um, I think we have seen that campaigns can matter and do matter, particularly with there were move, there was movement in the polls after Romney's comments about 47 percent. There was then movement in the polls um, after the first d- debate where it seemed that Obama had not live up, lived up to expectations. Um, so th- in terms of campaigns mattering, in terms of the, the effect on the vote outcome, we definitely see that movement. But also the idea that campaigns can matter in terms of providing information to voters. Um, I know we had talked earlier about whether or not whether or not presidential debates matter mm-hmm. for voters and for citizens. And inevitably they do because it is one place where in this hyper-produced, fragmented media environment, we get to actually hear the candidates in their own words say what it is that they want to see happen and how it is that they're going to make that happen. Um and yes, can they use untruths in those debates? Sure. Yeah. And but then there are fact-checking organizations right. that can help the citizens learn whether or not those those particular statements are true. And yeah. a lot of it is dodging and, and you mm-hmm. know, pivoting. And, and But, you know, the moderator, hopefully, usually, is um, the one who kind of brings them back on track. And, you know, it, it is a, this is this is what kind of frustrated me with the vice presidential debate. We kept the, there. You know, we see these narratives, uh, you know, the day or so of the debate, maybe the day before where it's all of a sudden like, okay, this is what we know about the debate. And what it was with the VP debate was um, the vice presidential debate has never made any difference ever oh, I, yeah. in anything. Yeah. And it was just – it's so out of context because it may be true that a vice presidential debate performance didn't directly impact the vote. But again, this whole thing is a process. It's right. it's it's dynamic. It changes all the time. And those debates play a really important role, even if it's just shifting public opinion for a short period of time. That still matters. Right. I mean, I, I definitely feel like in 2008, when we saw the Biden-Palin debate, whether or not there was a direct effect of exposure to that debate on vote choice, there was certainly some kind of at least indirect effect on the kinds of things that people were thinking about as a result of getting to see Palin and see Biden side by side unfiltered in their own words. Well, and you did you've done that research on the Tina Fey Sarah Palin effect, right? Right. right. So so you know, in addition, then you have these spin-offs where you have commentary, whether it be, you know, satirical commentary or partisan commentary on those media events, and that can amplify some of the things that that sort of come to people's minds when they're watching the original version of like that debate. Right. 
Now, Lindsay, Senator Arlen Specter recently passed away, and that, that reminded me that I first learned that he switched parties from Twitter, from Senator Claire McCaskill's Twitter feed. <laughs> I mean, that was, what, back in 2009. I mean, how has Twitter, how has Facebook changed the, the, the shape of this kind of political campaign? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it's the the... Again, the continual dynamic evolution. Um, I, I think it's it's very obviously it's sped things up. Um, it happens quicker and quicker and quicker. Um, but you know what's important to note is that in two thousand eight, Twitter wasn't really on the radar. I, I remember asking my students in the fall of two thousand eight how many of them knew what Twitter was, and maybe you know. A, 5% of the class raised their hands. I remember we talked about and we were reading about how, you know, everyone says Twitter's so great, but, you know, college students who everyone thinks of as sort of the thermometer of what's going on, college students aren't using Twitter. And I think that we were both kind of thinking, you know, give it some time. Right. And so, I mean, it, you know, every election we're going to see these new technologies. This is why, I mean, I love what I do. I, I mean, I just, it, it's it's so fascinating to watch this change from year to year to year. Um, but so now we see, you know, college students are like, th- there was maybe one student in my class who didn't have a Twitter and um, this, he, year. this year, and he said, um, you know, I was just trying to hold out. You know, he, said, <laughs> he, he was just like, I just wanted to be the one that didn't have it. And so now, of course, I made him have it because it's required for the class. <laughs> so it, the bottom line is um, it, it's, it's playing a much bigger role. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, completely transforms the whole process. It just provides another outlet for particularly politicians and candidates and public officials to communicate somewhat informally with um, their constituents and with, you know, the thousands or millions of people that follow them. I mean, uh, Barack Obama has, I think it's 800 plus million followers. So um, it's, you know, it and, and sometimes they'll post things that are, you know, not, well, not recently. They're all campaign related. But, you know, I mean, sometimes they can engage in a more informal and personal way with people. And I know that um, from some of the research that I've done and, and research I've read that people do respond to that um, kind of personal connection, you know. Um, and, and this is why the emails you get from the campaigns always start with your name. Uh, you know, it's Lindsay. Are you with us, right? You know, and I was like, "Oh wow, Bill Clinton emailed me. That's so cool." <laughs> I mean, there is something about that, and I, in fact, we've joked about this because in two thousand eight, um, I think you got the text message from oh, yeah. the Obama campaign Say, that saying that um, Joe Biden was the vice presidential pick, right? So on my phone, I was like. Oh, Barack Obama texted me and told me that his selection for <laughs> VP was Joe Biden. The next day, she was so excited. She's like, guess who texted me last night? <laughs> and it was kind of late. It's like, ooh, who's It was like three me? in the morning or something. <laughs> um, but anyhow, I mean, it's, it's changed the means by which uh, we communicate. I think that we're seeing a lot of similar types of communication. I think one of the things that's been most interesting um, when you look at Twitter and Facebook in this particular election is um, the, the prevalence of memes and how, um, it's like, For example, the Big Bird meme um, that came out of the uh, first presidential debate. Uh, We see people – people. what's most unique about this is that people are not simply consuming information. They're producing it as well and they're riffing on it and they're changing it. And that's where the humor comes in because I I think that we as citizens and just as human beings are not only social but we're also playful and that's something that that – 
serves us in particular ways and not only for survival but also as a social lubricant and so the idea that individuals are taking political phenomenon events and individuals and then sort of chopping them up and and then repackaging them in ways that are enjoyable and funny and they want their friends to think oh look how funny I am with my big bird meme so it's, <laughs> it's social but it's also it kind of a kind of political activism and and I think that there is nothing bad about that ever Right. I absolutely agree. Um, so I think that that is something that that uh, we see new since 2008 is is kind of the the prosumer, the, the consumer slash producer who's really um, adding to the dialogue, adding to the campaign dialogue. You know, um, the Obama campaign end up using Big Bird in one of their ads. Um, right. right. Although uh, PBS said they didn't want it. They were nonpartisan. They didn't want Big Bird in in a partisan ad. Poor Big Bird is yeah. being bandied about. <laughs> he must have a lot of followers now. I'm sure he, he has. must be making a lot of money. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Lindsey Hoffman and Danny Young from UD's Department of Communication. And one of the things that they have done some research together on is the use of humor and where it came from. You know, the whole Colbert and Stewart syndrome. Why? Cynical people like me trust John Stewart more than we trust any any United States news media. Well, first of all, Colbert and Stewart are not new. I mean, Stewart, granted, I mean, he joined the show in 1999 and I think really transformed The Daily Show from what was – I think it could be described as a bit of a mean-spirited, like... It was sophomore. It, it, it really was. And um, I think that Jon Stewart came to the show and brought his own kind of political sensibility. And then there was the the former editor of The Onion from Wisconsin, Ben Carlin, who came on. And the two of them really kind of transformed the show into something that was that had a bit more of a political agenda, I'd say. Um, not necessarily a partisan agenda, but more of a political agenda to really comment on the media environment, and comment on the political process. However, all of that does not mean that this stuff is new at all. In fact, when we look at, we look back at ancient Greece, ancient Rome, I mean... It always the, goes back to Greece. It always goes back to Greece, really. It goes back to the toga parties and the grapes. And they were, they were engaging in these same kind of satirical enterprises. And the relationship between satire and humor and a democratic... Um, regime it, it's they're they're like kissing cousins because when you have a a government in which the individuals who are governed are supposed to be looking with a critical eye at the institutions and the individuals in power and it is their job to be critical of them and to be challenging of them and to decide whether or not they're going to keep them there is a something really riveting about using satire to kind of deconstruct the reality, to expose hypocrisies. They really are. I mean, democracy and satire are really tied together. And not, not the, I mean, the main reason really is because if you do not have a democracy that protects free speech, then oftentimes you do not have political satire protected and you can get in big trouble for saying right. the kinds of things that we really take for granted. Um I do think, though, that what we see right now with the success of Stuart and Colbert and the critical um, acclaim is in part a response to frustration with the media environment that we live in right now. Okay, so you see um, some frustration with mainstream news. You see frustration with hyperpartisan outlets. But you also see a, a desire for something that goes further, something that's challenging but not bitter, 
Um, and I think that's what's different. And, and I would say that satire in the form of a, a Stuart or Colbert, and I know not everyone believes this, but I believe that even though they are generally distrustful of government, not government per se, but the the individuals perhaps who are in positions of power who are perhaps not following through on their promises. Um, they do believe that government can be an answer, and they do believe that we as citizens deserve something that serves us well and that we can make that happen if we get engaged. So I would say that's not a fundamentally cynical premise. Right. And that's what I was going to uh, build upon. You know, some of the research that, that Dana and I have done, um, which has been a lot of fun uh, working with you. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Hoffman. Um, but we've looked at, uh, we've actually kind of deconstructed the idea of cynicism. And uh, what Dan and I have really been thinking a lot about is is not so much that, well, because you know, I'm primarily a media effects scholar, which means I, I look at these programs, but I also want to know what effects do they have on people? Because there's sort of a um, general assumption uh, that floats around that says, oh, the Daily Show is making people cynical. It's making people, you know, not care in, about politics or not trust politics. And I think what we have found is something decidedly different um, in our research as as well as um, others. It has shown that that these programs can actually be um, create efficacy among their 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 viewers. So it's not so much that they are inhibiting participation, that they are discouraging trust in government. They actually provide people um, oftentimes with the tools that they need to be skeptical rather than cynical. So we, we kind of draw this distinction between skepticism and cynicism. And the skeptic, as it as it um, turns out, also goes back to ancient Greece, right? Right, right, right. We're really, we're just borrowing. We're just building <laughs> on on the toga folks, really, all the time. But the, I think that one of the, a couple of the the findings that have been most compelling coming out of studying the the viewers of Colbert and Stewart is these are individuals who are politically knowledgeable, but they're also politically engaged. They discuss politics a lot. They participate in politics. They pay attention. Um, sometimes, if they're watching the show and perhaps they they don't know enough about some of the topics that have been on the show, they then subsequently go and engage in what we call information-seeking behaviors. So they'll go online, they'll Google right. it, they'll say, oh, if this is a, in the headlines of Stuart or Colbert, I should know about this. So all of those things we see as as functional outcomes of the show. It's almost like Colbert and Stuart have given people my son's age, he's 23, hope. I think so. I mean, I, I think the the environment, the media environment we're in, Dana mentioned this already, that, you know, we're in such a fragmented media environment. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, information is sort of in the eye of the beholder. Now it's it's possible to, information is everywhere. You don't rely on traditional journalists anymore. Um, you can pick and choose and you can rely on highly partisan media, which a lot of people do. You can say, oh, you know, I only want to read this newspaper because that's the newspaper that I trust. Or you can say, I like, I want to supplement my media diet with, you know, a little humor, a little bit of pizzazz here and there. So I think what a lot of people are doing and, and what my students struggle with in particular is like, well, where do I start? I don't even know yeah, where to very begin. Very intimidating. Yes. Um, so what I try to lead them through is, you know, there are a lot of different sources and you don't have to spend your entire day trying to consume every piece of political information out there. But there are some ways you can kind of um, you know, be at least informed enough to know what's going on. And in the context of a campaign, um, you know, what I tell them at the very least, 
uh, coming full circle to the the beginning of the conversation is watch the convention speeches, watch the debates. Mm -hmm. This is the raw material from which journalists and satirists and everybody's going to draw from. Yeah, those are all those are all the ingredients that that bake the various cakes and souffles that come out on MSNBC and Fox News. But the raw ingredients are all there. Yeah. And you can take your own discerning eye and to the original content itself and think about what do you think of this original content? I don't know that that's always enough, but that's where that's a great place to start. Yeah. I mean, was Big Bird really the most memorable moment of that debate? Possibly because that was a pretty that debate was kind of in the weeds. It's you you can't simply trust that whatever news organization you're paying attention to, if they mm-hmm. say, oh, the biggest moment was Big Bird. Well, you know, if you would watched it, you might you might come away with a different conclusion. So it's important to just be able to, you know, I always say diversify your portfolio, <laughs> you know, <laughs> try to try to get information from a variety of sources. Thank you both very much. This has been a whole lot of fun. I'm going to have to get you guys down here again. Sure. It's <laughs> great fun. We've been talking today with Lindsay Hoffman and Dana Young, both from UD's Department of Communication and both from UD's Center for Political Communication. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org.